Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. For the next two weeks or so, I'm going to be down in Cornwall, right in the southwestern tip of the UK. It's glorious weather. Just been out for a little walk this morning. I've got the Defender parked outside so I can actually see the Defender just opposite the tiny little lane that I'm on at the moment. And I did the 410 mile drive in the Defender. For those of you who don't know yet, I was lucky enough to get for two weeks a Defender to do this big road trip over in Cornwall to Nino Overland, a, a Land Rover specialist um, aftermarket company. They, they source, they handpick, they sell Defenders. They can modify them for Overland expeditions. They can do anything you want to them. They kindly got in touch and offered me one of the defenders, knowing how much I like them. And it is a bit of a realization of a dream of mine to be able to, to drive a defender for an extended period. It is absolutely fantastic. I can't say the name, but I went to pick up the defender on Thursday. So just two days ago, went to pick it up, got there, I was chatting to the team, lovely bunch. And I would love to say the name of the person, but a, a proper, a proper Hollywood A-lister walked in um, and I think he was dropping off his Defender to have work on it. And I was just talking to the gentleman there from Neen Overland and we were chatting outside the front door and, and up walks this, this Hollywood A-lister, just casually walking in, dropping off the keys to his Defender and having a little bit of a discussion about the work he wanted doing. Incredible. I'm now sold on it. Look, I've done over 400 miles in the Defender now, and that feeling of adventure, that feeling of just being able to go anywhere, sitting up high, knowing you're in a, an incredible vehicle that can take you around the world, it's an amazing feeling. And I'm in a predicament now, because this is my dream vehicle, but it is not cheap. I've got my dream motorbike, for example, Triumph Bonneville. So the reality is I'm not always looking online for my dream next bike. I look online for motorbikes because I'm curious about the market and what there is, but I don't look thinking, what am I going to buy next? But with a car, I'm still very much in that area. I'm still very much thinking, what am I gonna buy next? What's the next vehicle? I'm going, to, I'm going to set my aim on, set my aim towards. And it's a defender, I know that. But the problem is it costs a lot of money. Look, I've said before, I could go and take a loan out for a defender. Let's say I'd need 22,000 pounds minimum. They are not cheap. And I could get a loan for 22K, but it's the monthly repayments that I'm worried about. You know, locking yourself in for a long time, paying 300 pounds a month, it's scary. And I know from having a lovely car before when I had my Jaguar XK, it's not just about going out and buying it, it's about maintaining it. You know, something could go wrong. It could cost two grand on the Defender. It could cost two grand. How would I feel losing two grand? Am I in a position where I can spend two grand on repairs and not blink? If I'm not in that position, I have to just, at least for now, leave it because I know I'm not financially there and it will, instead of enhancing my life, it will destroy my life. 
I may get onto this a bit later because I think I've got a few comments about this kind of thing, bike related. So I'll move on now to your questions. And I, I'll say right now that I've just started an Instagram page and also a Facebook page specifically for the podcast where I, I get to share your a, a few more of your stories, a few of your pictures that you all kindly sent in because I thought that I just get too many good stories and pictures that I'm not sharing at the moment. So I'll include the Facebook and the Instagram pages in the written description of this podcast episode. But the Instagram page is freedom underscore machines underscore podcast. And the Facebook page is Freedom Machines Podcast. No spaces at all. So they're the two pages. I'll include them in the description below. But please do give them a, a follow uh, because that will be all of the, the, the extra stuff that goes along with the podcast that so far I haven't been able to share with you all. So please do go and check that out. Right, I begin. Freddie, I'd like to respond to Stephen who asked, why would you buy a Royal Enfield when you can get a good used Sportster 883 for similar money? Well, I can think of quite a few re reasons, particularly for UK roads. Firstly, as you've seen from my bike pics you discussed on a previous podcast, I've had both. In fact, I've had two Sportsters. One kitted as a Torah with screen, panniers, engine guards, pillion backrests or pillion backrest, etc. And the other, more of a bobber slash cruiser. I currently own a Himalayan, so I've got experience of both. The main reason is performance. If we take the classic 350 Royal Enfield, pitched against a standard 883 Harley-Davidson as an example, the Harley supposedly has 50 horsepower and is 250 kilograms. Both of these are lies. It weighs more than all of the moons of Jupiter combined, and even though mine was staged too tuned, <laughs> it had 34 horsepower at the back wheel when it was actually set up. This is stage two tuned with 34 horsepower from an 883 Harley-Davidson. The Royal Enfield supposedly has 20 horsepower and is 190 kilos wet. What I can say from experience and seat of the pants dyno is they, they both have a realistic top cruising speed of 60 to 70 miles an hour. But where the Royal Enfield excels is in its dynamics. Suspension, brakes, handling in the cities and B-roads, all vastly superior on the Royal Enfield. My explanation for this is simple. The Enfield is an updated 1950s design that was built for the UK. The Harley is not very updated design that was built for the US market. Then you get on to practicalities, lower running costs, warranty, lighter and more manageable, and a style that screams UK. I know it's Indian, we'll gloss over that. All that said, I love sportsters. They're full of character and style and a great weekend warrior bikes. You pay your money and make, <laughs> you pays your money and he makes your choice. 
As a side note, my touring spec Sportster is very similar on paper to my Himalayan. Same real world performance, same practicality, both black, both hard luggage, crash bars, screen, heated grips, but the Himalayan does twice the MPG, is much more affordable, can go off road, handles the back road surprisingly well, but ultimately it comes down to style and at the moment I prefer the Royal Enfield, but I adore the Harley. I'd like to own both. Uh, that would be a great two-bike garage. Regards, Stephen. Yeah, Stephen, you're, it's eye-opening hearing this from a current slash ex Harley and Royal Enfield owner comparing the differences. I've ridden a Sportster 1200. I think the one I rode was, uh, was about 64 horsepower in theory. They are gigantically heavy lumps. I, that's the first thing that surprised me. It felt like it had been chiseled out of a lump of granite. And I mean that both positively and negatively. The, the build quality, the, the solidness of it was really, really incredible, but you felt every one of those kilos. They are solidly built beasts. But my Lord, they're heavy. Uh, Performance-wise, yeah, you get nothing. Nothing at all with regards to dynamism. But the feel you get from the Harleys, they are the kind of bikes I love because the Americans do this so well. Feel, over and above anything else, especially on, on bikes. And the way we're going in the world now, with, with more and more regulations, more things just restricting us with regards to all of these, whether it's cars or bikes, driver rider aids, beeping everywhere, electronics all over the place. Harleys, a lot of the time, they are a breath of fresh air. And, and in a way, I think a lot of the time, Harley are trying to catch up with the modern world. Look at the Nightster, look at the Pan America. A, a lot of the time they've been trying to catch up and you know, get more modern. But in a way, I think they almost missed the boat with that. And now we, as consumers, are going completely the other way and actually wanting the more simplified riding experience, wanting less electronics, for example, and just wanting that beautiful quality. So in a way, I think Harley have just missed the boat on that and maybe they should just go back to what they do best, which is make beautiful, simple cruisers. Although having said that, I have seen someone sent me over. They said, Freddie, have you actually had a look at the prices of Harley Davidsons? For all of the Americans, let me know what it's like for you. But I think I had a look and the Harley Davidson Heritage, to the best of my knowledge, I looked yesterday morning, Harley Davidson Heritage in the UK, 23,000 pounds. 23,000. I went into an Indian dealership, I, sorry, I went into Crazy Horse and I had a look at the Royal Enfield Chief Bobber, one of the coolest looking bikes I've ever seen. That was 22,000 pounds. To give you a, a, bit, of, uh, a bit of an example, the, the Triumph Bobber, I'm sure that's about 12 and a half thousand if I remember correctly, I'm sure it is. That makes the Indian Bobber about 10, thousand pounds more expensive. Yes, you get about 600 cc's more than the Triumph Bobber, but in essence, to the untrained eye, they are incredibly similar looking bikes. You know, both brilliant looking, stripped back black, floating seat. Yet the Indian 
is 10,000 more. Bike prices really are getting quite huge for some things. Uh, thank you, I've gone off in a bit of a tangent, Stephen. Fascinating to hear your thoughts. And uh, I'm with you, especially on the Himalayan. This is a bike, it's quite funny how things work. The Himalayan is probably one of the worst new bikes I've ever ridden, but it is very, very possibly the bike I have the fondest memories of. I had it just before I started the YouTube channel. I've got such fond memories of whizzing around country lanes and taking it off-roading. It's a bike I would very seriously consider having in my garage. I'm, I'm really, I've been toying with this idea. They're great value, rugged, utilitarian. I got the feeling on the Royal Enfield Himalayan, you can drop it going off-roading and you'd laugh. It's funny, it's what bikes should be. They should be able to get roughed up and dropped and pick it back up and then whiz off again. And I've taken some bikes three times the price of the Himalayan off-roading. Didn't have 10% of the fun of that Himalayan. The Himalayans are exactly what a bike like that should be. They've just captured it perfectly, Royal Enfield. Stephen, thank you. I move on. Um, Freddie, you do make me laugh. <laughs> I'm so sorry, I didn't save your name for this. Freddie, you do make me laugh, telling us you've only spent £45 a year to run the Bonneville. That might be what you spent on the occasional battery, an odd bit of lubricant, but how much have you spent on extra bits and bobs from Motone and extra pairs of cool jeans and boots, additional wax jackets and goodies from Urban Rider that you wouldn't have spent had you bought yourself a nice, sensible Honda? Then again, would we be watching you pottering around Suffolk on a sensible Honda CB500X? Possibly not. Yeah, it's a very fair point. M my justification for, for this, because I recently said the Bonneville costs about £45 a year in maintenance, it, it really does cost nothing. And yes, you're right. If we look at the Motone bits I've had on my bike, Look, it's, it's probably a grand. It's probably a thousand pounds. That's the truth. My justification is none of that's needed. So the 45 pounds a year I quoted, that's what a sensible level-headed person would have spent. Whereas I am like a child and I keep changing, modifying, and then putting back to stand and then changing again. I'm like a child, but not everyone's like a child. Once you've got the bike to the level you want, you don't need to you know, modify it or change it after that. And with gear, yes, yes, this is true. I, I do, uh, you know, I've, I've spent a decent chunk of money on gear. I don't know if it makes me sound pathetic. I almost enjoy buying biking gear as much as I enjoy the bike. I think it's all, especially with the modern classics, it goes hand in hand. I remember when I had, uh, yeah, I had a Suzuki Bandit as my last bike and I had, what did I have? I had some big plastic touring boots I bought off eBay second hand. Um, I didn't even actually have riding jeans. I just wore my Levi's. Um, and then my, my boots broke, so I actually spent two years, it's about three years ago, I, I was riding for about two years just in normal shoes and normal jeans because I didn't have any biking gear. Uh, and since getting the Bonneville, it just opens up all of that cool gear that I always admired when I saw it. And you're right, it does, it costs a lot. The truth is I probably spent, probably spent the same amount, this is the truth, on, on Motone and modifying gear, my panniers and my gear as I have on the Bonneville now. The Bonneville is actually incredibly cheap, it's everything that goes around with it. 
but I'd like to think now I'm in a position where where I think I've got enough now. I don't think I'll be doing any changes. I really don't. I think everything's perfect. Thank you, and it's a very fair point. I can't argue with one bit of that. I move on from Tom in Wales. Freddie, um, enjoying the podcast and my first time emailing. I've been riding for nearly three years, and I've always wanted to take my wife with me on adventures. I've never ridden with a pillion and always said I wanted to get comfortable riding before I learnt to ride with a pillion. I did have an accident not long after passing which knocked my confidence of having a pillion. Do you have any tips for someone wanting to learn to ride with a pillion? Thanks, Tom in Wales. Yes, Tom, I do. Practice. There are no specific tips I would give, but just get out there and practice. Uh, one thing I would say, actually, the only thing you really have to watch out for a little bit is when you're manoeuvring, let's say you've got your pillion uh, on the back with you, and when you're manoeuvring around, just make sure when you're turning with a pillion at low speed, don't turn too much and lean too strongly, because if you lean too strongly trying to manoeuvre or going at low speeds, it's much easier to topple over if you've got a pillion. I'll give you one other example. I was riding pillion, uh, sorry, I was riding with a pillion on, on my back. It was about, I think it was in summer. Uh, he's a decently big guy. He was probably about 95 kilos and he was on the back of the Bonneville and I was riding in London and I was coming up to a zebra crossing. So I was preparing to stop. He was on the back of the Bonneville. You can imagine, you know, I'm, I'm 80 kilos, he's 95 kilos. That's a good chunk of weight you're having to additionally have on the bike. And I started braking hard because the person in front of me brakes hard. I was braking hard. And as I was braking, I started just turning my handlebars to the right. And that combination of turning my handlebars to the right and braking fairly hard with a pillion on the bank, back meant that I, I came decently close to falling over on my right-hand side because it was almost like a pendulum effect. All of our weight leaning over to the right while braking hard. You've got to be careful in those situations. Once you're up to speed, it's fine with a pillion, but just bear in mind when you're going around tight bends or maneuvering, that's where you feel the extra weight. I would also say one other thing, that um, lower seat height, also can help. So cruisers and modern classics, I find easier with, um, with, with the weight distribution of a pillion. Although one other thing I would say, if you have a bike with a backrest, that will be just heaven for the pillion. That's the single best thing you can do for pillion comfort. And one other thing, if you can have a bike with two separate seats or separately segregated seats, that's a big help. Look at my Bonneville King and Queen seat. Look at a lot of the comfortable Harley Davidson seats. The difficulty is when you have a flat style bench seat and what happens, the pillion often starts sliding towards you and you end up doing some kind of plank press up position for large chunks of the ride because the pillion keeps squeezing down towards you, towards the tank. So if you can get a nice comfy seat, maybe a backrest, that will transform it. And just be careful at the slower speeds. But the only thing I would say above all else, just get out there and practice. Just do a, a mile or two at a time. I remember when I first passed my test, I had a Honda CB500F. Um, 
and my my partner at the time i i took her out for a ride um literally the the day i passed my test i was so excited so i went to get a helmet and went out for a ride in southwest london i was just straight out on it but i only did town riding initially with a pillion i spent probably the first month or two just town riding riding no motorway riding right good luck tom I, I would say also with regards to having a crash, yeah, the best way to do it, just get back on the bike and carry on. So I like your attitude with that. Happy riding. I move on. Freddie, I'm 54 and I took up motorcycling. I live in Copenhagen, Denmark, and here we have a lot of training before we're allowed to drive a motorbike. Have a listen to this, everyone. To be allowed to ride a motorbike in Denmark, 29 theory lessons you need. 29 theory lessons. Four times 45 minute lessons on maneuver course, 13 times 45 minutes driving lessons in traffic, five times 45 minute lessons on technical maneuver course. At the last one, you learn fad driving, uh, fad driving, not sure about that, uh, what that is, fad driving, emergency dodging, drive, with a sidecar and braking as such. We also have five mandatory maneuvering EU lessons that I struggled with. But all in all, I got the license and am saving up for my first motorbike. I just have to get onto this before carrying on from here. Uh, this is, of course, from Mark in Denmark. Mark, thank you for sending that over. That is eye-opening. That is a colossal amount. It's good in one way, all of these lessons. It will make you a better rider. It will mean the roads are safer. Uh, it's, it's good, but my Lord, that will put people off biking. Because if I look at that list, and of course it's not just the list, it's the costs involved in completing that list. There will be very few people, I'm sure, under 30 who would be able to, you know, spend that amount and then you've got to buy the bike. It's, it's a real disincentive to get into biking. Real disincentive. It's fascinating hearing that. I carry on. Um, I'm getting, okay, all in all I got the license. I'm getting a Suzuki Savage, now called the Suzuki Boulevard, because it's so beginner friendly and fairly cheap at around about £2,000 sterling. I'm old and I have much to lose. So I want to get my confidence and routine in place before I get something more powerful. As my driving instructor said, some get on a bike for the first time and belong in the Champions League. Others start in a lower division. I got the hint. <laughs> I love that. I think I would also be someone starting in a lower division. I, I continue. The Suzuki Savage has a huge fan base and has remained more or less unchanged since 1986. There's a Danish Facebook page uh, group which has 500 members. It's got one cylinder, 650cc, 33 horsepower, um, and it can really pull well. With a weight of 395 pounds, it is easy to steer and a good city commute. I'd love it if you got your hands on one. Well, Mark, I'll be completely honest. Suzuki, oh, Suzuki Boulevard. Let me just check this. Suzuki Boulevard. 
Word 650. Let's have a look. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Lovely looking bike. Really beautiful cruiser style looking bike. Hmm, I wonder how much these are in UK. Sale UK. Let's have a look. Hmm, okay, I'll have a look later. Lovely looking bike though, really very nice choice. And that will be, I'm sure, relatively very easy to ride as well. Fantastic looking thing. Hmm. Fantastic. Right, I move on. Mark, thank you for sending that over. All the best over to Denmark. I, I can imagine you're, you're pretty much snowed and iced in there. I've just got back from Estonia, so I'm imagining Denmark's the same. No riding at all in the winter, I'm sure, up in that part of Europe. Moving on to Stephen. Hi, Freddie. There was a chap on your podcast who was considering switching his train ticket for a motorcycle. He was planning to spend the four and a half thousand pounds he would have spent on his ticket on a Royal Enfield Scram 411. Someone else pointed out that he'd not factored in running costs. However, this is a small consideration. Uh, th this is a small consideration that after one year of owning the motorbike, he's got a free motorbike and only the running costs to worry about. I hope that makes sense, Stephen. Yes, Stephen, for some weird reason, I glossed over this. You're absolutely right. You know, you could say yes, but a motorbike, you've got running costs. Well, for a Scram 411, my guess is that running costs in the first year of ownership would be around about 150 pounds, then you've got the fuel. But it's going to be minimal. They're so economical as well, those Royal Enfields. I'm sure they do 70 miles per gallon. And you've got a motorbike at the end of it. You've got a bike. I mean, if you buy a second-hand bike, for example, you won't lose a penny on it in a year, chances are, if you buy the right kind of bike. And even a brand new Royal Enfield, you're not going to be losing any more than 500 pounds in the first year. And you've got a bike to use whenever you want. Thank you, Stephen. Moving on to Craig. Freddie. I'm looking for my first bike after just passing my test, and I'm very tempted by the Triumph Street Triple 675. Originally, I was thinking of getting a Suzuki SV650 and then potentially a Street Triple as my next bike. But after listening to your podcast and you saying you should buy the bike you really want, do you think it would be a sensible option or do you think it's too powerful? Thanks, Craig. Craig, a, a fascinating position to be in, and I know exactly how you feel with that. The, the Suzuki SV650, yes, of course, that makes more sense for your first bike. But I find actually, just from people I speak to, look, if you've got the budget, Craig, if you can go and buy the Triumph Street Triple, I just go out and buy it. If you've got the budget for it, I would say, yes, you could argue from a safety point, it's nice to have lesser horsepower, but I would say just go and buy the Street Triple if you've got the budget. Be sensible for the first month or two, but that's a lovely, well-mannered bike, the Triumph Street Triple. And I can already tell just reading from it, you're planning to get the Triumph Street Triple. You're planning on that Suzuki just being a stopgap. So I can almost guarantee you're not going to be wanting that Suzuki SV650 by the time summer comes around. Go out, buy the Triumph, and just miss out all of that extra step of the Suzuki and go out and get your dream bike straight off because you're going to immediately love it. I 
even need to say be sensible, you'll be fine on it. They're, they're so, so well-mannered. Just careful on the corners, don't rip out the clutch quickly like I did and I almost had an off on my bike and you'll be absolutely fine. I've just had, oh, I thought Basil, I'm looking, I'm doing dog sitting, I thought Basil had actually just opened the door but it's Monica letting him in. Well done, Basil. That's a, a whippet that's just come on. Absolutely loves running and walking and attacking certain other dogs. Extremely stressful walking him. Okay, I'll carry on. Craig, happy riding. To, let's have a look. To Chris, Freddie, a response to Aaron in France with the A2 woes. Ah, now this is fascinating here. I read this earlier this week. This is fascinating. This is re with regards to a2 licenses, whereby it, it's not the full riding license. It means that you are restricted to 47 horsepower bike, either for two years or until you do your, your full big test. And in a lot of countries, even if you pass your full big test, you're only allowed to ride an A2 license and an A2 level of bike for two years. And then you can graduate to the full bike test, uh, to the full uh, bike requirements of being able to ride any level of bike. Now, this is an interesting point here. So have a listen to this because I've had a bit of research as well on this. Freddie, in response to Aaron from France with A2 woes, I'm not entirely sure about the EU rules, but in the UK, under an A2 license, you can restrict a motorcycle to reduce its power by up to half in order to fall in line with the 47 horsepower limitation. This means you can restrict a bike that has up to 94 horsepower down to 47. This is often achieved with a machined piece of metal fitted between the airbox and the throttle body, limiting the amount of air available to the engine. These kits are very cheap and come with the certificate to say your bike is restricted. However, at least here in the UK, you aren't required to actually prove to your insurance company that the kit has been fitted. I rode my 55 horsepower Transalp for two years during my A2 license with no issues. I never even bought the restrictor kit in the end. Of course, if you have an accident or get caught speeding and they prove you haven't fitted the kit, you'd be in for a fair bit of trouble. So to be safe, buy yourself a regular 47 to 94 horsepower bike and restrict it that way once your A2 is out of the way, you can de-restrict the bike and ride it at full power. If you are enjoying it already, you'll absolutely love it with the extra puff. Hopefully the EU law is similar to the UK's in this respect, as the price of A2 compliant bikes is overinflated compared to bikes which fall only slightly above the 47 horsepower limit, as they aren't desirable to those with full licenses yet. Um, and per perceived as unfit a uh, for A2 license holders. Chris, thank you so much for sending this over. I didn't know this. Any bike, 94 horsepower, 
or below, you can make into an A2 compliant bike by buying a restrictor kit because the restrictor kit can half the horsepower. So 94 horsepower into two makes it 47 horsepower. So you can look at, this goes for, I'm so sorry, I forgot the name, um, uh, the, the French um, listener who, who sent in the question last week about what bikes he could choose from, but it goes for everyone as well. Look at any bike, 90 horse, 94 horsepower or lower, and you can buy a restrictor kit for it. Just go out and buy a restrictor kit, and I've had a look at these. Restrictor kits seem to cost anything from 60 to 100 pounds. And if Chris is right, which I'm sure he is, that restrictor kit will come with a certificate. And from what I've seen online, they're fairly easy to fit. Well, this is a bit of a revelation because what this does for all A2 licensed riders is it opens up any bike you could want in reality. I mean, there's no real need to look for any bike over 94 horsepower. You can pretty much take your pick of anything. And the restrictor kit's available for all bikes. I've just been having a look this morning. You just Google. Triumph Speed Twin 900 restrictor kit, uh, anything, a Harley Davidson restrictor kit, you can have a look. They've got kits for all different types of bikes and it's, it's a big deal. I can see here, you know, even if I go onto the Triumph website, they've actually got a page about it. Triumph state, you don't have to restrict your fun with our stylish, capable and accessible A2 license ready lineup. They actually list the bikes that you can restrict. The Triumph Sport 660, the Triumph Trident 660, the Triumph Speed Twin. It, it's all well catered for. It's actually fascinating when you're looking in, into it in more detail. I've just been looking on forums as well where people ask, does anyone know the average cost of a restrictor kit? I'm looking 95 horsepower bike so I can half it. Um, and then people saying, yes, just do it yourself by restrictor kits. For my bike, for example, Triumph Bonneville 865cc restrictor kit, £64.95. I could go on and on, but it's big business. There's no issue with this at all. It looks absolutely fine. I'm now on beginmotorcycling.co.uk and they quote in-depth guide for 2023 for A2 motorcycle license holders. And I'm quoting... There is no legal requirement to have a certificate or even documentation to say that the bike has been restricted. There is no legal requirement. So even a certificate isn't a legal requirement. And I will, I will absolutely back up Chris here because I also now come to think of it. I remember when I was learning to bike, I remember there were a lot of people I spoke to who just bought any 94 horsepower or below bike, didn't restrict a kit it and uh, just took their chances because you're going to be incredibly unlucky for, uh, you know, police to pull you over and actually take your bike, look at the internals and check that it's got the restrictor kit on. That's, of course, not me saying that you should go and do it. It's just a fact. It's just the way it is. That is, uh, they are the cold, hard facts. Although, please, don't take this as me saying you should do it, but it's a very interesting area that's in reality, the truth is incredibly hard to police. 
Chris, thank you. I move on to Steve. Freddie, I've traded, oh, Freddie, I've traded in my Triumph Speed Twin for a new Kawasaki Z900RS SE at Orwell Motorcycles. I test rode the Z900RS and a few others, and this just clicked the upright riding position, the smooth power delivery from the four-cylinder engine, retro styling, quality components with the Olin shocks, the Brembo brakes. They all came together and shouted at me, buy me, buy me. I'm looking forward to the summer. My father and I are riding to the Picos in Spain in June. I just didn't think the BSA would have the power for me. I do still plan to test ride one later in the year and may add it as a second bike. My granddad rode a BSA sloper to work and back shortly after the Second World War. So there is a family connection with the brand. Well, Steve, I'm delighted because for anyone who remembers, Steve had a Triumph Speed Twin 1200 and he just didn't get along with it. You know, and this is, this is often the difficult thing when you're, you're trying to find the exact bike that suits you. You do have to buy one, figure out, just, I don't like this element of it. Sell it, get another one. And you may well with the next one think, oh, bugger, I don't like X or Y on this until you finally get to the kind of bikes that you like. There is trial and error there. And with the Speed Twin 1200 from Triumph, I, I remember when I first saw it and I thought, well, there it is, it's my dream bike. That's exactly perfect. It looks incredible. I love everything about it. That would be my dream bike. And I rode it very briefly, just for about uh, two minutes, very briefly. And it's, it's a very good bike. But I remember, for me, it felt more like a, a super naked in, in a modern classic body. Whereas if you look at the Street Twin 900 or a Bonneville, they're, they're all day just sitting there, relaxing, laid back position. It's, it's very different on the Speed Twin 1200, actually. It's a deceptively aggressive bike where you more sit on the bike as opposed to in it. It's, it's very different. It's often hard to pick these things up. I mean, for the right person, the Speed Twin 1200 is superb, but you will probably angle at a slightly more aggressive form of riding than a Bonneville kind of rider. So it is for a different kind of rider that. Fascinating to hear your thoughts, Stephen. Congrats. I think the Z900RS, I, I only hear universally good stuff about that. That is the unsung hero of the modern classic world. They're meant to be stunningly good bikes. Their reputation is superb. I move on to Chris. Freddie, I'm new to riding and I've only owned a bike since the summer of 2022, but I've been watching and listening to your content and I own a Mutt 125 Fat Sabbath. I've done no real long journeys yet as I just use it on a Sunday afternoon to enjoy the local country lanes. I don't think I ever wish to, do an ex uh, to own an extremely powerful, expensive motorbike. So I think the next step for me is to get my A2 license to unlock the next category of bikes. So my question is this, do I go for something smaller in capacity, i.e. a 350 or 400cc bike next, or do I go for something slightly more powerful, like a 650? I really like the look of the new Royal Enfield Hunter, but is it viable? Is it a viable long-term option? 
or would I very soon want to upgrade to the 650? The shortlist, Royal Enfield Hunter 350, Honda CL500, Royal Enfield Interceptor 650, Royal Enfield Super Meteor 650. For reference, dream bikes in terms of styling, Triumph Scrambler, Ducati Scrambler, BMW R9T, Motogood CV7. I could just get my full license and buy one of these as I have, uh, as, as I have the budget but I'm just not interested in that amount of power and spending that amount of money. I like the idea of cheaper bikes that you are not scared to take out of the garage. I love what Royal Enfield are doing and what they stand for, Chris. Oh, and Chris said, I almost forgot one, one other option or wait for the new baby Bonneville. Okay, right, Chris, I will start with the baby Bonneville. Just from the pics I've seen, and it's only the pics I've seen, I slightly favour the looks of the Royal Enfields over that baby Bonneville, although I may be wrong once it comes out. It's also good timing. Just bear in mind that A2 restrictor kit segment that we were talking about, because that will mean that you can go out and buy um, a lot of other bikes, like, like the Bonnevilles and other things as well, at 65 horsepower. So you could easily get a Motogood CV7, you could easily get a Bonneville, a Ducati Scrambler, Triumph Scrambler, any of those. And then you buy a 65 pound restrictor kit and you fit the restrictor kit yourself. So that opens up a huge amount of bikes including some very good value used bikes. So definitely consider that, Chris. Now, are you soon going to get bored of the power from the Hunter 350? Bearing in mind you right now have a 125cc Mutt Fat Sabbath. Great choice, by the way, lovely looking bike. I would say to you, considering you already have a bike and you're looking to do your A2 license to unlock the next category, my advice to you would be get, get a bike at the top end of that A2 license category. I would be suggesting to you, go for the Interceptor or Super Meteor. Uh, now, if you ask me, Chris, because I can see, uh, like me, absolute power isn't high up on your list. And I can see you like that modern classic styling. Uh, and this may just be my personal taste, but I would say if you have the budget that Royal Enfield Super Meteor. I mean, I've just seen the, you know, the pics. I've been sent over the full press pack for that. I don't know if I'm legally allowed to say this, so I may get in trouble. I'm not sure if it's out yet or not. They're gonna come and it's 6,800 pounds in the UK. And I've read the full press pack for that from Royal Enfield. They're just, just stunning looking bikes. I, I can't even explain how much I like those bikes. They're off the scale cool. That bike for me is what, is what Harley Davidson should have done with their updated Sportster for me. For me, the Royal Enfield Super Meteor is everything the Harley Davidson Sportster should have been to carry on that Sportster name. Um, that may be, uh, that, that will probably divide opinion that. It's just my preference or my opinion. I would say the Super Meteor. 6.8K looks superb. Otherwise, you can have a look at some second-hand options. You know, the Bonnevilles, you'd easily get a Bonneville for four or five K, something like that. Motogutsi V7, similar. Uh, let me know what you go for, Chris. Happy shopping. Moving on. Freddie, I can see you're being led astray by finance again, and I do empathize. 
Ashley made an impassioned case for finance and you concurred. Time is everything. And you're both absolutely right, of course. Into my 50th year and I lost 20 years of memories by not riding. And so I now seize every day. Our time on this rock is always shorter than we think. But, and you know there would be a but, where you are younger, uh, when you're younger, financial freedom is framed by the idea that you'll be working for decades to come. And so money spent today can easily be paid tomorrow. This is how people get into debt. With time, the allure of finance fades and our skepticism of the work debt cycle grows. This might sound terribly ageist, and it probably is, but we all tend to go through the same journey. Now that crypto markets have imploded into their own singularity, hopefully the TikTok generation will realize that work, money and consumption are not going to be as easy. Unless, of course, they are on OnlyFans. I should add a, a cheeky smile there. Finding freedom is both finding freedom is both financial and from our experiences. Yet bike manufacturers curate images of freedom to create uh, to convey that finance is easy and that finance is needed to access a lifestyle. Marketing is convinced or has convinced us to buy more and more expensive bikes to access experiences we could easily have afforded on cheaper machines. Specifically, the world is trying to convince you off of your marvelous Bonneville for a newer bike. A bike that you already have, uh, a bike that you have already had many great memories with. Did you lose time in not having those memories on a newer bike? I say no. To the essence of freedom machines, is freedom about riding a bike or is it marketing an illusion of freedom to take on more credit? The days of cheap credit are going to evaporate in 2023. Caveat emptor. Time then on the bike is glorious, almost irrespective of the bike. Time is not lost because you cannot afford a £20,000 bike or stretch yourself financially to get that halo machine. Change is exciting, but the glow of a new bike quickly fades after a few months. The key, I think, is finding a cool bike, one that does what you need it to, a reliable bike that is also in your zone. A new £20,000 bike is more or less the same bike when it's three years old, second hand at £10,000. Yet marketing tries to make us feel they're different. Freedom then is not marketing nor finance. Marketing tries to make us feel that freedom has to be about buying more. Time is priceless, but marketing tries to put a price on our memories. As someone who worked in finance for over 25 years, but not played the finance game since my 30s, I was fortunate to semi-retire at 45 and now have all the time in the world for freedom. So my advice, I say enjoy your time, ride your bike, gather experiences, but don't forsake your financial freedom in doing so. 
A thought and happy riding, JB in Scotland. I should add to this, JB has had a very expensive Triumph rocket that he's recently sold for a significantly less expensive bike. JB, thanks for that. That's, it's just fantastic insight and advice to live with. I'm often guilty of it. You know, we are, many of us, guilty of it. I'll give an example. My dad, he traded in his BMW 3 Series estate. Lovely car, six years old. He loved it, he loved that car. But he went out and he then got a 1 Series uh, petrol engine. So he traded in his old diesel, got a 1 Series petrol engine. And I said to him, you know, he was really excited to get it. And I said, you know, Dad, what, what do you think of it? What's the new BMW like? And he said, honestly, I, I think I probably prefer my older 3 Series. And, and it's true because a lot of the time, after a few weeks, a few months, that brand new vehicle, well, it, it will just be a used vehicle then. You know, things move on very quickly. And how much of having the latest and greatest is a factor with you looking back on your memories of enjoyment? And where's the happy medium? I'll give an example from my perspective. The truth is, I'm, I'm not looking for a bike now. I've got my dream bike, my Bonneville. I know I often talk about looking at bikes, and this is true, but there's a reason I haven't traded in the Bonneville, and that's because it's still my dream bike. And every time I test a different bike, there's, it, it's hard to move away from my Bonneville because I love it so much, and it, it genuinely does everything I want it to do. And key, it gives me that feeling. It's got the style that, for me, I love, and it's every bit as stylish for me in my eyes now as it's always been. It's every bit as cool. And a newer Bonneville, while it will be better, and honestly, hand on heart, yes, I probably do slightly prefer the look of the newer Bonnevilles than my Bonneville. I do. But just not quite significant enough for me to move on. I've got my dream. I'm realising my dream with my Bonneville every day. I mean, I'm going to be riding off to Europe. I'm riding up to Scotland this year. I'll be taking it everywhere without a second thought that it will make it. Any bike built after 2008 can make it anywhere. They're all reliable. But what's the happy medium? Um, let me try and give an example from my point of view. When I used to have my Suzuki RF600 and when I had my Triumph Speed Triple, which I did uh, a big European tour to Croatia, or when I had my Suzuki Bandit and I did a ride over to Holland and I rode up to the Lake District with friends, I had those bikes always knowing they were not my end destination. I always knew they weren't quite me. Every time I'd ride them, I knew, look, this bike's great for now, but I know it's just not me. I just hadn't figured out what kind of biker I was yet. And then the Bonneville came along and it was a eureka moment. The first time I got on it, I thought, my Lord, this, this is me as a biker. This is me, a Bonneville. It fits me perfectly, the styling, the laid back attitude, Everything about it is me, and it's the first time I've ever felt that, that feeling on a bike. And that, for me, JB, that's, that's my 
happy area with, with regards to, I had to take a loan out for £3,650. It's all paid off now. But yes, I had to do that. That was painful. But for me, that was the cheapest dream bike I could get from a financial position. It was £80 a month for payments where it wouldn't completely cripple me. Um, and that was my happy medium. So it is, yeah, where's your happy medium? Kind of a rhetorical question. JB, thank you for that. I move on. Colin, North Carolina, USA. Freddie, following up on your latest episode. Let me just check. Yep, battery on the mic, okay. Following up on the latest episode on why someone would pick a Royal Enfield over a Harley. Okay, bear in mind, everyone, this is Colin from the US. So why would someone pick a Royal Enfield over a Harley? The reason I personally switched from a 2019 Harley Davidson Street Bob, God, I love that bike, I love them, to a 2021 Royal Enfield Continental, the Harley had a price tag of almost $18,000 out the door, which I took a loan out for. My street bob was a bike I was almost scared to ride, didn't want a blemish on it, not even a spot of rain. I wanted it perfect all the time. It was definitely a Sunday ride. I bought my Continental earlier this year, selling my street bob. I was out of the door for just over $6,000, which I was able to pay cash at a reasonable price. That's a third of the price I spent on the Harley. I ride it in rain or shine year round, not worrying if it's clean, not worrying, uh, not worrying if it's clean or not, and have never had more fun on a motorcycle. Harleys in the US are like Honda Civics. They're very common. I get stopped daily on the Continental asking what year it is or what is it even. Personally, the Royal Enfield just have more character, but taste is subjective, of course. Engine, engine displacement doesn't always matter. Colin from the US. Colin, a fantastic insight from someone in the US who, who had a Harley before the Royal Enfield. Thank you so much for sharing that. Moving on. Freddie, on the last podcast, you asked for a great cruiser for a low-powered uh, license. I've bought a Honda Shadow ACE 750 for about 2,000 euros. They're great, bulletproof, under-stressed engines with good power for starters and actually good to live with. Not much can go wrong with them. Ruben, I'm delighted you've said this because I will often be some kind of strange unpaid salesman for the Honda Shadow 750 because I've never ridden it before, but I always think, my Lord, that, and I'm just typing into eBay now, that is a, a superb looking proposition from a motorbike. Honda Shadow 750, they look great. It's a Honda, so it's never going to go wrong. And they come in at very reasonable money if I'm on eBay now, £3,195, £4,900, £4,400. Here's an example. £4,400 for 2008 model Honda VT Shadow 750 from a dealer with 21,000 miles on the clock. This is actually from Superbike Warehouse, which is a, a very big place in the UK to buy stuff. So you'll be able to get these for under 4K, probably 3K if you buy it privately. But even going to a reputable dealer, four and a half K for such a good looking bike. I mean, Ruben got his for 2,000 euros. 
it's a it's a seriously good proposition this bike so and I, yeah i can find them easily for 3k here on ebay ruben thank you that's a i'm glad to hear from an owner because it's a bike i always talk about so bear that in mind anyone looking for a low powered uh, cruiser honda shadow 750 they can be picked up for 2000 euros or so i move on to nick Freddie, I was listening to the podcast and Ashley doing tours uh, and things. So, ah, uh, yes, Nick, I'm sure this is Nick Moto UK. So I didn't write Nick if it was, but I'm sure it is. Nick Moto UK. I was listening to the podcast and about Ashley doing tours and things. That's some serious mileage. Does PCP have mileage limits to it? I googled and yes. You have to be careful as you are limited due to annual mileage on these deals. So if going touring, you have to keep an eye on it. Nick, that's a very good point. And it leads quite nicely onto what we've been talking about. Financial freedom, but also the feeling of ownership freedom. How important is that? How much of a factor is it in your mind? I know every time I look at a car to buy and I look at these deals, whether it's lease or PCP, and they say annual mileage and you have to guess your annual mileage. And then every penny over that mile, you have to pay, not a fine, but you have to pay, I, I don't know, a penny a mile, for example, for every mile over that, let's say, £8,000 limit. Sorry, that's a grandfather clock going off. How does that affect you? You know, is it an issue where you're, you're out in your, on your bike and you think, oh dear, I can only do 8,000 miles, so I need to be careful of where I ride it. Maybe that Euro trip isn't a sensible idea because it may boost up the mileage too much. It, it's an interesting dynamic to think about it. And it's definitely something worth considering if you are thinking about doing big mileage. You do have to look at that stuff. Thank you, Nick. Moving on to... So Rob over in the US, Freddie. Additional new motorcycle purchase thoughts, i.e. settling versus purchasing the bikes we truly desire. As with many of your listeners and viewers, our dream bike purchase decision ver versus settling on something less. It won't equate to our inner happiness and contentment for very long. The decision to purchase a contemporary glitzy plastic CAD clad, trendy machine versus soul-filling modern classic. Think Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Stones, Aerosmith, Springsteen uh, versus Kanye. Greatly appreciated your last podcast listener comments, and I am paraphrasing. Life is short, buy the bike you want. Along with JB's sage and refined motorcycle choices, post experiences with larger displacement choices, not hitting the sweet spot. My Suzuki 250, for example, feels like my favorite old sneakers, always making me smile. My newer Tiger is wonderful, yet will be a nice acquisition for the right buyer as I seg towards what bike best fits or best feeds the soul. I'm with both listeners' positions. As it's now mid-winter and new motorcycle choices are many riders' constant happy thoughts. To non-US listeners, I'll contrast Harley-Davidson here in, in America to your UK. In my opinion, 
all wholly, utterly stunning machines and beautiful classic vehicles. Like the Land Rover Defender. Yes, they may be plentiful in England and have been manufactured forever until the new overpriced, contemporary, glitzy replacement models introduction. Harleys here are the American Land Rover Defender equivalent. If a motorcycle rider is stopped in their tracks by the sight of anything beautifully classic, the above bike automotive music appreciation theme should happily resonate. Connecting to your bike and its lifestyle simply makes for a happier, more complete life. For example, I'd invite anyone to visit the Harley-Davidson Museum in Milwaukee, the Disneyland of America's most popular top-notch well-done motorcycle destination. Walking amongst thousands of loyal Harley riders in attendance at last summer's Harley Museum during their weekly bike night was heart-filling, and indeed some of the nicest people I've ever met, aside from the thousands of Harley-Davidson bikes. In closing, I'll leave you with two interesting motorcycle statistics here in America. How many Harley-Davidson dealerships are there in the US? 600. How many Triumph motorcycle dealers are there in the US? Well, there are six, 163 Triumph motorcycle dealers in the United States as of January 2023. Triumph dealers are primarily smaller shared operations here in the States versus Harley's, by design, quite large lifestyle. Uh, sorry, uh, whereas uh, in the States versus Harleys by design, quite large lifestyle focused motorcycle dealerships satisfying our inner motorcycle happiness. Rob, yeah, Rob, it's, it's a really good point and Harley-Davidson do it better than anyone. I would actually say that very possibly Royal Enfield are now possibly leading the rest of the pack with regards to really selling that lifestyle dream. You know, the Americans always do it well. You know, anything with regards to entertainment or feel-good vibes, it's always everyone else, take anyone, take the UK or anyone and put it on steroids and you've got the US the way they do these bike meets, the Harley-Davidson dealerships, I've watched them on YouTube over in the US. It's just another level. So I, I really must visit one of these. But it's the lifestyle that goes with it with Harley-Davidson. You know, it's just a great meeting point and they sell the dream of the lifestyle so well. Every time I go to a Harley dealership, I want one because I'm sucked into that lifestyle. From another point of view, the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got Moto Guzzi. I have so many American listeners saying, look, you can't buy a Moto Guzzi in the US because there are no dealerships there. And it's interesting what you say, Rob, about Triumph. A lot of the time they, they almost piggyback off another dealership. And you're right, you don't get sold that dream as much when you don't have these lovely dealerships. I get this now with Royal Enfield. Their dealerships are top, top notch. Every time I go to a Royal Enfield dealership, I get that Harley Davidson feeling, the, the dream of them selling a lifestyle. The fact that every bike looks brilliant and cool. They're doing a really good job and they are powering through the pack now, Royal Enfield. I move on to Chaz. Oh, this is good. Um, everyone, you can go and check out the Instagram, freedom underscore machines underscore podcast, and also on Facebook, because I've shared a couple of pics of Chaz's trip to, to India. Hey, Freddie, 
thought I'd share a few pictures with you as I know you're an Enfield fan. My girlfriend and I are currently a thousand miles into a trip around northwest India on a Bullet 350. The picture was taken last night about 20 miles from the Pakistan border on one of the largest salt lakes in the world. Truly an epic place to ride. I heard you mention that you're thinking of going to Goa. My advice would be to fly to Mumbai and then ride the 500 miles down the coast, down the coast road to Goa. I can give you recommendations on place to stay, but it's a truly beautiful journey. The 350 is a bit of a dog, 52,000 kilometers on it. It's underpowered, slow, vibrates like hell, but I've not had uh, anything to do to it in a thousand miles, so I can't complain. It feels solidly made. The Enfield's 10 pounds a day to hire and a real bargain. Petrol is about 96p a litre. Anyway, I'll enjoy there listening to the podcast while riding up to the Thar Desert. Uh, Chaz sent me over some pics of this. Um, and I, yeah, as I said, I shared them on Instagram, Facebook. Just that pure, pure adventure vibe. It's everything biking is amazing for and everything that biking represents and everything that Royal Enfield represents, 10 pounds a day. Everything biking should be ridiculously cheap rentals of freedom machines. And that's not just freedom physically being on the bike, but the financial freedom. Anyone can do it. Anyone can pay within reason, 10 pounds a day to get a bike and just head off into India. I mean, it's just, I'm just so excited seeing that. And honestly, even more so knowing that I can go to India and rent a Royal Enfield for 10 pounds a day. This goes hand in hand with why Royal Enfield's so good. I know I always get excited about it, but I could go out and get a personal loan for a brand new Royal Enfield and probably only end up paying about 90 pounds a month or so. And you know, you could even pay less if you want to spread the loan out more. These bikes are such great value that it opens up cool biking to colossal chunks of the market that were never considering getting into biking. Happy riding, Chaz. I'll be following your journey because it's, it's just fantastic. I move on. Ooh, ooh, okay, I'm moving on to the last one. Freddie, you, uh, you've mentioned in a previous podcast about the Yamaha SCR 950, something that I'd never heard about before and not even had my eyes on. I've been riding adventure bikes all my life, but when the COVID beep starts, I had to sell my bike. Anyway, moving forward, I start now looking into buying another bike and this style type of bike has made me look twice. And this particular example, and actually the cheapest one on AutoTrader at the moment that I share the link here with you, is really spot on. So to that end, my question for you is, what do you think about this bike transmission style, i.e. a belt? I'm asking this because I've never tried anything like this before. My experience is with chain and shaft. I might try one and see how it goes and feels, but some honest review from your side on a bike like this would greatly help. Oh, let's have a look. I'll just open this link up here. This is a bike uh, that just never comes up in discussions, the Yamaha SCR 950. 
lovely looking. It's quite hard to explain actually. It's kind of like a, this sounds weird, almost imagine a, a scrambler slashed with a, a little hint of cruiser style. They're really, excuse me, so sorry. They're, they're really lovely looking bikes. Five and a half grand, I mean, this is insane. 5,450 pounds for a, a four-year-old 2019 950cc Yamaha with retro looks and 4,000 miles on the clock advertised as immaculate condition. It's one of the bargains in motorcycling. I truly believe it. Okay, Marcio. Marcio, thank you for sending that over. Uh, in reply to your question, so most motorbikes are chain driven. Uh, the belt drive is on Harleys and I think it's BMW use shaft drive as do, I'm sure Moto Guzzi V7, that's shaft drive, isn't it? Uh, belt, belts are traditionally, yeah, belts are traditionally Harley Davidson and I think they used to be made out of leather. So I think what happened, and someone tell me if I'm wrong, I think a lot of belts or a lot of bikes used to be um, belt drive, but they used to be made out of leather. So it was quite unreliable. So then chains came along and they were much more reliable. The thing now is that belts are incredibly reliable and very, very low maintenance as are, as are, do, 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 do. as our shafts, shaft drive is extremely low maintenance as well. So from a common sense point of view, you would have to say that shaft drive and belt drive makes way more sense than chain drive because there's infinitely less maintenance. You don't have to get all oily and it's annoying adjusting a chain and getting oily. It's annoying. You don't have any of those issues with shaft drive or belt drive. So to answer the question, what do I think about the belt drive? Well, if I'm looking at it from a Harley point of view, I would say, uh, Marcio, there is absolutely no reason to um, adversely think about a, a belt drive. Go out there and buy it. Don't think uh, a belt drive will, will change your opinion on the bike for, for the better or worse. You can go and buy a belt-driven bike without any concerns that maybe you won't like it or maybe it will lose some feeling. No, it will be less maintenance and you won't have any, any negative feeling towards it at all. In fact, I would argue that, and I'm classing myself here to the untrained kind of I, not I, but when you're riding it, you put me on a few different bikes. I wouldn't be able to tell if I'm riding chain belt or gone completely blank or shaft chain belt or shaft I wouldn't be able to tell I wouldn't I, I welcome anyone arguing with me and saying Freddie of course you would but I don't think I would you chuck me on any one of those three drivetrains and I would have no idea what when I'm riding the only thing I would be saying is wow this is amazing because I don't have to oil and adjust a chain a lot of people I've heard buy motor goodsies for example because they are shaft drive there's no chain um, and from BMW's point of view, using shaft drive, they use it because it's extremely low maintenance. In fact, I think it may be zero maintenance. The negatives, it does cost more to fit. You know, it does cost more to make the shaft drive over a simple chain. 
but once it's on, I think there's no maintenance at all. Um, so keep me posted, Marcio, with your thoughts on that, but I would say go and get that Yamaha SCR950 without any concerns on that at all, apart from the fact that you're not going to be worried about a chain anymore. Right, we'll end it there. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I'll include all the links of the new Instagram and Facebook pages below. Have an amazing week all, and I'll speak to you all 